0: Now is that special time of year when houses are outfitted with lights, trees are dressed with ornaments, hot chocolate is served with marshmallows, and the world is filled with carols. Turn a radio on or walk into a department store, and you will almost certainly be confronted with Christmas music. Some of the songs flash us back to merry moments long ago, and others. Well, they just flat out annoy us, right? I get it. Grandma got run over by a reindeer, and you want a hippopotamus for Christmas. One particular song, though, caught my attention this week as I prepared to preach, and perhaps you're familiar with it. It's John Lennon's Happy Christmas. The lyrics go, and so this is Christmas for weak and for strong, for rich and the poor ones. The world is so wrong. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. And if you've heard the song, you know in the background bef- between each verse, there are children, a chorus of them singing, War is over if you want it. War is over. And so if you've heard it, it's in your head now. And they just that's their refrain, the entire song. Was Lenin right? Is war over? We'll consider this question as we continue our journey through the book of Micah. We're going to look at the next three chapters this morning. It's chapters 3 through 5, if you're following along. And we're going to try to answer this question in light of our main idea this morning. That is the idea that we think captures the primary thrusts of all three chapters, which is this. God rules... Jesus is king. God rules and Jesus is king. We're going to unpack the text in three parts. We're going to look at God's judgment, God's promise, and then consider how God keeps his promise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that this morning you would give us bigger ears than mouths, that we might hear and respond to your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah's polemic against the virulent idolatry and injustice that exists among God's people continues here as now he takes aim against the civil leaders in verse 1 of chapter 3. He writes, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Are you supposed to know what is just? You hate good. And love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Here we see a picture of those who are supposed to adjudicate rightly, those that are supposed to know justice, those that are supposed to act and protect the people, are abusing them. They are devouring their subjects. Instead of being good shepherds and tending God's flock, Israel's leaders have transformed themselves into cannibals who tear the skin off of their people and strip the flesh from their bones. These gluttonous rulers have enriched themselves with food that came from the banqueting tables of their people. Not only, though, do, these Israel, or do Israel's leaders gorge themselves on the people, but so too her prophets. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Micah singles out the prophets' use of money here to connect their wicked behavior with that of their cannibalistic patrons, which are the civil leaders in Israel. The prophets are there cheering along the cannibals so long as they get their fair share of the chopped up bones. You see, the religious system has joined the judicial system in protecting the criminal and left actual or potential victims helpless. How does God deal with such corruption among his people? Well, he sends Micah, the true prophet, to call his people to repentance by proclaiming judgment. Look at verse 8. This is Micah writing of himself. As for me, however... I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. Micah's message of the coming wrath of God is unpopular, but it needs to be heard. The people need to know that they are self deceived and that they have set themselves up as God's enemies. Because as wicked as these guys are, they really don't see a problem. They actually say to themselves, if you look in verse 11b, Is not the Lord among us? All the while they are doing religious things, but they are doing them with black hearts and unholy affections. Their depraved hearts empty their religion of its center. They empty their religion of God himself and are left with nothing more than powerless superstition. Religious activity apart from Christ is nothing more than powerless superstition. These leaders are actually a little bit like Christmas trees. You celebrated Christmas, right? Uh, Most of us have anyhow. You know how setting the tree up goes. If you're hardcore, you go out into the forest, you find that right pine, and you have your trusty axe with you, and in a few quick swings, you cut it down, and then you drag it back to your home you're more like me, you just drag it out of the attic. (laughs) Works just as well. What comes next is simple and fun and a bit of a tradition in my house, despite the fact that my wife has a little bit of a Grinch, I'm just saying, I'm the the Christmas spirit in my house, that's me. Had a tree up before Thanksgiving this year. Anyhow, (laughs) what comes next, it's simple, it's fun, it's tradition in my house. Uh, You put on some Christmas music, light a fire, and you begin hanging ornaments on the tree. And eventually, you plug it in, and voila! The tree is beautiful. It's decorated with dazzling lights and brilliant colors. Yet, despite appearing lively, we know that the tree is dead and will soon be tossed out so too with the prophets and the leaders of Israel. They are decorated with the dazzling ornaments of religious activity, which make it seem as though they are alive, when in fact they are dead and about to be tossed out. What about you? Are you simply doing religious things with a black heart and unholy affections? Have you so muted the voice of Jesus in your life that you walk in disobedience to his word, live divorced from his people, all the while saying to yourself, is not God with me? All the while you are separated from him. Has your Christianity been reduced to nothing more than a powerless superstition? Micah's rebuke of the prophets here for, for some ridiculous reason when I was doing this, it kept reminding me of my favorite Christmas movie, Elf. I don't know if any of you have seen it, Wolf Feral Stars. It's great. His name's Buddy the Elf. And, and there's a scene in the movie wherein he confronts this mall Santa Claus. And he, and he confronts him with these words. He says to him, they're kind of having this whispering conversation. and He says, he says, he says you sit on a throne of lies. You're a fake. You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. then he turns eventually and declares to everyone in the room, He's a fake! He's a fake! It's quite hysterical. (laughs) But the elf is able to recognize the imposter because he's a real elf, and he knows the real Santa. Likewise, Micah can recognize false prophets because he's the real thing. And he knows the real God. See, false teaching has never gone away. It's not just unique to Micah's day. It's very prevalent in our own. And it's plagued humanity since the very first deception took place in the garden. So I think a good question to ask ourselves is, how do we recognize false teachers or false teaching? And I think typically at least three things show up in false teaching. First, sin is made to be very small, not that big of a deal. Secondly, usually, money is made to be a really big deal. It's usually at the center of what's going on. And thirdly, people and comfort and personal satisfaction or happiness are presented as more important than God and his word. However, I do think the best way to protect against false teaching and false teachers is by knowing healthy teaching and healthy teachers, honest teachers. The best way to insulate yourself from wrong-headed teaching is by committing to know God and His Word. As a result of the corruption among the civil leaders and the prophets, Micah says this will be their sentence, that they will not know the Lord. God will hide his face from them and refuse to speak to them. We see it in verses 4 and 7 if you're following along. This is what he writes. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God separation from God is always the consequence of sin. Yet it not only separates us from God, but it declares us as his enemies. We talked about when we went through the first couple chapters, God hates sin. And he hates us insofar as we identify with our sin. God deals with evil. Micah's pronouncement continues and shows us that fact in verse 9. He says this, Listen, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment. And her prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins. And the hill of the Temple Mount will become a thicket. In their abundance. Israel's leaders have failed to heed that warning that Moses gave to them before they entered into the promised land all the way back in Deuteronomy. Do you remember what he said? He said this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The comfort of God's people led them to complacency, which led them to forget God as they miscarry justice, misrepresent His Word, and misplace their worship. Oh, friends, we ought to take care lest we too forget Jesus amidst the abundance that we enjoy lest we forget that we were born into the same evil that characterized these men, lest we forget that we too once happily submitted ourselves to the slavery of sin. This prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction would actually... uh, be not come about right away. God would temporarily stay his hand as Hezekiah led the nation into repentance. We talked about it last week. You can check it out in 2 Kings 19. But he repented. But a short time later, the people would return to their folly like a, like a dog to its vomit. And the city would fall to the Babylonians. And this brought about what's known as the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C. God separates himself from his people because of their sin. But he does not get a divorce. He will restore his people to right relationship with himself. And so Micah's prophecy at the beginning of chapter 4 takes a breathtaking turn. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about His ways so that we might walk in His paths. For instruction will go out of Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. But each man will sit under his grapevine and under his fig, with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of Hosts has promised this: Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever quick sidebar here on verse five they're not saying that in this idyllic time that there are many gods and it's a pluralistic society not what micah's saying there's a strong adversive there he's saying the pagans will walk according to their god and get what those gods offer which is destruction and we as for us we will follow the one true god and we will inherit his blessing which is this heavenly scene we see unfolding before us back to verse six on that day this is the lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you watch tower for the flock, fortified hill of the daughter Zion. The former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. The words of God's judgment against Israel's sin have barely left Micah's lips and already he has words about God's promise on his tongue. He foretells Jerusalem's utter destruction. Then does a 180 predicting that Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord, will be the focal point of humanity, exalted as a source of instruction, justice, and righteousness. Micah forecasts a future wherein the nations turn from their false gods and turn to the true God, desiring to know him and to learn his ways. God is is envisioned as gathering his people, healing the wounded, erecting a new Jerusalem, establishing justice, giving security and abundance, giving rest, giving most importantly himself to the members of his kingdom. This idyllic oracle, I mean, it speaks to the deepest longings of our hearts, does it not? I mean, how amazing will it be to know and be known in perpetuity by God and his people? I mean, and how gracious of God to give us a foretaste of that even now as the church gathers as those reconcile to him and to one another. Who doesn't want justice, rest? Who doesn't want the end of fear? Who doesn't want to sing Lenin's anthem with a clear conscience? War is over and have it be true. This future is best described by the word shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. But but the Hebrew word has a little bit more to it. It's a little more pregnant than our own. Shalom goes beyond what we typically mean when we use the word peace. It includes ideas of wholeness, preservation, and salvation. Shalom, it's the proper functioning and harmony of all things. It is everything being as it should. It's the world rightly ordered and beautiful so how will this perfect peace how will this shalom of chapter 4 become reality well first i think it's just prudent to point out it will not be brought about by humanity's vain efforts to stop all the fight It won't be brought about by the right program, not by the right policy, not by paying it forward, not by electing the right president, not by joining hands and singing, we are the world. Not by human effort, only by God's wise plan and his advent. And this is exactly what Micah uses uh, verse 4, ch- uh, chapter 4, verse 9 through the end of chapter 5 to tell us about how God, in accord with his wise plan, keeps his promise and miraculously brings about the salvation of his people through judgment. Micah has given them hope, but their glorious future does not negate the people's sinful present. Judgment will come. God's people will go into exile. And that's what we see in verse 9 of chapter 4. Now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in open fields. You will go to Babylon. And there's another shift. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the power of your enemies. Micah returns to his pronouncement of judgment with a taunt aimed at waking the people to their waywardness. Israel's king is not capable of protecting her from the wrath of the divine king. God's nation has set itself against their true king by identifying with idols. They've listened to their hearts instead of God's word and in effect said, God, we belong to someone else. We belong to these gods we're worshiping. And now they will face the consequence of unbelief. Painful separation from God. Exile. Historically, this is fulfilled with the disgrace of Judah's wicked king, Zedekiah, whose eyes are actually plucked out of his head after the last thing they see is the death of his children before him. And then Babylon, the Babylonian exile follows this as Jerusalem is burned to the ground. I mean, Micah predicts this long before it happens. It's a matter of record, and it really is astounding. You can check out the story in 2 Kings 25 if your interest is piqued. That can be homework. But, I mean, these verses, 9 through 11, speak of this coming Babylonian exile so far in advance that a lot of more liberal scholars will go, that couldn't have been original to Micah's work. He couldn't have written that. He couldn't have known these things would have happened because their worldview has no room for the supernatural. The Bible really is an amazing book. Babylon will be the instrument God uses to give Israel the exilic fruit of her sin and that separation from God will be extremely agonizing. Micah compares this estrangement to childbirth, which I'm told is exceedingly unpleasant. Though the first time, she was like laboring in the hot tub, sipping on water, and I thought, what is the big deal about this? It got worse later on, though. Yet just like childbirth, after pain comes joy and peace. God will keep his promise to bless his people. He will ultimately bring them unto salvation through His right judgment. He will rescue and redeem His people from their sin when they repent and believe in Him. Verse 11 returns us to the more contemporary situation uh, as, it re- as it pertains to Micah's audience, which is the coming siege of the Assyrians. This is what he writes in verse 11. Many nations have now assembled against you, They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan. That he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze so you can crush many people's. Then you will set apart their plunder to the Lord for destruction, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now, daughter, who is under attack, you slash slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. The enemies of God's people who've functioned as instruments of discipline, well, they themselves are not exempt from God's justice. They don't understand this, though, and so they delight in Israel's misery and gloat. In more contemporary language, we might say that they're talking a little smack. There's some trash-talking going on. And while they're in the midst of their trash-talking, in the midst of their taunting, the Lord will show his sovereign rule has no jurisdiction, and he will flip the script on them, which I think teaches us an important lesson. You see, your usefulness is not evidence of your faithfulness. Does that make sense? God uses everyone however he pleases. And you might be quite useful to him. And at the same time, be faithless and far from him. One thinks of the prophet Balaam. You probably remember his story. He's asked by Israel's enemies to prophesy against Israel for some money. He takes the money and then resolves to, I'm only going to say what the Lord reveals to me. His donkey talks at one point when the angel of the Lord's about to kill him. Then he says what God wants him to, all the while remaining committed to his first love, which is money. Eventually, in his pursuit of riches, it's discovered he was taking even more money from the king of Moab, Balak, and advising him to lead Israel away from God by sending women to seduce the men of Israel. and So ultimately, Balaam's story ends with God's judgment falling on him. If you desire, you can uh, check out Numbers 22 on through the end of that book and read all about Balaam. It's quite interesting. The point here, though, is Balaam was quite useful to God. He was a prophet, in fact, yet his heart was far from God. Your usefulness is not evidence of your faithfulness. God uses wicked Balaam and pagan Assyria greatly, but neither knew him. Point this lesson out to exhort you to ensure that you know Jesus and that you love him more than the tasks he has equipped and empowered you to complete. Micah reveals that Assyria's usefulness will come to an end it's in verse 12 they do not know the plans of god god soon brings small weak israel under his unassailable protection and uses them to pour out his wrath on judah's villainous antagonist i mean historically 11 i'm sorry verse 11 through 5 1 will come to pass prior to the exile when king hezekiah is led to victory by the angel of the lord who we've previously argued is the pre-incarnate jesus and he he leads uh the angel of the lord leads king hezekiah out in victory as Sennacherib cherub and the assyrian siege they have jerusalem surrounded and hezekiah repents and he prays and then the angel of the lord leads them into victory and judah survives we talked about a couple weeks ago second kings 19 again if you're interested but can you, can you imagine being among those Assyrians as you laid siege to Jerusalem? You've overtaken the northern kingdom because it was a kingdom divided. You've just thwarted them easily. And now you're ready to march on Jerusalem. You've come up to Lachish. You've got them surrounded. I mean, victory must have seemed all but certain. In fact, if you or I were there, I imagine we likely would have been cheering the mocking of Israel that's recorded in 2 Kings 18.23. This is what a representative of Assyria says. So now make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? See what's going on? They're mocking it. They know they have victory. and They're like, look, we'll even give you weapons and horses, and y'all still couldn't take us. You don't even have enough people to put on the backs of those horses. And I, I point out this particular mock, this jeer, because I think it captures the historical fulfillment of one. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. The Assyrians strike on the cheek Israel's ruler by mocking him, by putting him in complete humility. He cannot defend himself. I mean, what a picture of humiliation. The king who represents God's people, unable to defend himself. I mean, imagine trying, somebody trying to strike the president of the United States on the cheek. not going to happen, right? It means that everything else, all the other defenses have been completely overcome. Yet Israel's humiliation would lead to her victory. God's judgment caused Hezekiah and the remnant in Jerusalem to repent and brought about their salvation. And to this point, I've been calling the fulfillment of Micah's prophecies the historical fulfillment, but perhaps a better way to say it would be short-term fulfillment. Because all the pictures of deliverance in the Old Testament, including the ones we've been viewing today, are but shadows of the substance They are but flickering candles imitating the sunlight. You see, every story in the Bible works to tell the big story of the Bible. And these prophecies, along with their short-term fulfillments, work to tell us about God's wise plan. They actually help us to understand the gospel, the great story of our deliverance from sin, the story of how salvation is brought to God's people through judgment. In the short term, we learn that what seems like Israel's humiliation leads to her victory. And the disgrace of the king buys life for his people. And in the gospel, we learn that when Jesus, the true king, the true representative of God's people, is humiliated and struck on the cheek at the cross, he is buying life for his people. What seems like defeat becomes his great victory. Israel's story tells us about our own story. Their problem wasn't other nations, but their own hearts, their own sin. Our problem is the same. We too have failed to love God and neighbor. We too deserve God's holy judgment. And we too can receive salvation if we unite ourselves to Jesus by faith. On the cross, Jesus Christ takes the exile that we deserve as he is forsaken and separated from the Father. On the cross, Jesus is destroyed so that we might live. And this is why he came. He came to rescue us by taking the judgment we deserve in our place. God's plan has always been to bring about eternal salvation for his people through judgment this is how the perfect peace of chapter 4 is secured when according to god's wise plan god the son humbles himself takes on flesh and comes to earth as a baby to live the life we should have lived die the death we should have died and raise from the dead so that we might share in his resurrection life so that we might share in his victory christmas is a declaration of war against those who would oppose God and his Messiah. It is an announcement that the true king of the universe has come to establish his unrivaled kingdom. Herod understood this. That's why he got rid of all the little children. And here we see the coming of this great king. We see this great act of war. We see Christmas predicted in verse 2 of chapter 5. Bethlehem. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel. His origin is from old, from eternity. The greatest ruler who will ever live, he will not come from mighty Jerusalem, but from the insignificant little town of Bethlehem. To put it in perspective, it would be as if Micah were saying to us, The most important person to ever live will not come from New York City, but from Nellie's Ford. Right? Not, Not the way we would draw it up, not what you would expect, but that's what God does. He uses the weak to shame the strong. His power is made perfect in weakness. And he uses weakness to make very clear that He is the one that is accomplishing. He is the one that is fulfilling His promises. Do take a moment and ponder the staggering truth of the incarnation. I mean, God, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, becomes a helpless baby who requires diaper changes and depends on a nursing mother for nutrition. It's preposterous. The God of the universe enters into our sinful world, enters into our suffering so that He might suffer for our sin in order to save us from it. Astounding. Therefore, God will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Which, if you want to go back to the exile, writhe as you are in the pains of birth. There's kind of a connection there. We don't have time to visit it. But what their exile brings forth in birth is the Messiah. Their judgment brings forth the readiness of salvation. Until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh, his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. Micah promises the good and mighty shepherd king will arrive and that he will properly care for God's people. He will not devour them as the corrupt leaders of chapter 3, nor will he offer them false peace as the lying prophets, but true peace. He will rightly lead, feed, and care for his people. He will give them shalom. Indeed, Jesus did come, and he inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, and he will bring it to completion upon his return. And this is what he was born to do, Born that man may no more die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled that's why he came to free us from slavery to sin to save us from the judgment that we have earned by our sins and to reconcile us with God and himself to give us peace with God and his people Micah continues to foretell about the fall of God's enemies and the effect of his gospel throughout the world When Assyria invades our land, Assyria here is a, uh, oh man, what's that word? Starts with an M. Anyhow, it's like a a moniker, there it is. It's a moniker for all of Israel's enemies. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land. When it marches against our territory, then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through. And there is no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be destroyed. Here we see the shepherd king's people sharing in and proclaiming his triumph. They're taking part in his sovereign rule as it extends throughout the world. Micomiskey summarizes this well, writing, The remnant of Jacob will be at one and the same time a source of benediction and a fomenter of misfortune, a channel of salvation and a cause of punishment an instrument of hope and of tragedy. In either case, though only a remnant, it is always triumphant with regard to the nations. The prophecy finds its fulfillment in the dual roles of the church, a savor of life to those who believe and of death to those who do not. What Micomiskey is getting at here is he's, he's showing us that the church proclaims the gospel, And when the church does proclaim the gospel, when the shepherd king's people go out into the world, a nation among nations, the gospel always has an effect. It always does something. When people hear the gospel, their hearts are either hardened to it or softened by it. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, the good news about Jesus will be the fragrance of life to some the fragrance of death to others. Church, we have a vital role in the story of the cosmos. And that role is to proclaim the gospel. We are God's wise plan for telling the world about His holiness, about His mercy, about His grace, about His love, about His coming judgment, and about His offer of peace. We are His plan. I love what C.S. Lewis says about our faith. He writes Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in his sabotage. Are you taking part in God's great sabotage? Are you being faithful to the call to share the gospel, to be God's people, to be a nation among nations? the Lord will establish his holy rule throughout the earth. And he is committed to making his people holy. The shepherd king will not only defeat the external enemies of his people, but also our internal enemies. Look at verse 10. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will not bow down again to the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. The shepherd king cleanses his people by destroying everything they look to for happiness and security instead of him. Jesus Christ does not coexist with other gods. He destroys them. And he demands exclusive devotion. And he's worthy of exclusive devotion. Nothing less. When God eradicates and destroys the things that we wrongly trust in, let me ask you, is it judgment Or is it mercy? We should allow his kindness to lead us to repentance rather than face his right judgment. Verse 15. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. This verse makes sure we don't get a wrong picture about who Jesus is. It makes clear that Jesus came the first time to bear judgment for those who will trust in him and that he will return as a tattooed warrior with a sword in his mouth, ready to end all evil. That picture's in Revelation 19. And he will return to make war on war so that it is finally over. I mean, how marvelous it will be when Jesus returns and establishes true shalom, how great will it be to fear no longer for that picture in chapter 4 to be true. To know that there will never again be a 9-11 or a Paris attack. Never again an Oklahoma City bombing or a Nepal earthquake. Never another Holocaust or human trafficking ring. Never. Never. I'm thinking about all the evil that God will end upon his second advent when he returns. I was reminded of a sermon I heard shortly after the Newtown shootings and I want to close with it. Jesus was not born into a sentimental winter wonderland. He was born into a war zone. Herod vowed to see him dead right along with thousands of his brothers. Satan hates children because he hates Jesus. When evil destroys the most vulnerable among us, it destroys a picture of Jesus himself, of the child delivered by the woman who crushes the head of our reptilian overlord. The demonic powers know that the human race is saved and they are vanquished by a child born of a woman. And so they hate the children who bear his nature. The satanic powers want the kingdoms of the universe And a child uproots their reign. Let's not offer pat, easy answers to the grieving parents and communities in Connecticut. We don't fully understand the mystery of iniquity. We don't know why God didn't stop this from happening, but we do know what this act is it is satanic, and we should say so. Let's grieve for the innocent, let's demand justice for the guilty. And let us rage against the reptile behind it all. As we do so, let us remember that Bethlehem was an act of war. Let's remember that the one born there is a prince of peace who will crush the skull of the ancient murderer of Eden. Let's pray for the second coming of Mary's son. And as we sing our Christmas carols, look into the eyes of Satan as we promise him the threat of his coming crushed skull. The mystery of evil is a declaration of war on the peace of God's creation. The war goes on, but not for long. And sometimes the most warlike thing we can say in an inhumane, murderous age like this one is that it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You For this season. Which reminds us. That we are wicked. That we do deserve judgment. But that you have been merciful. And that your wise plan has always been to deliver your people. Through your right judgment. It's always been to maintain your justice. And your mercy in perfect harmony. Your right plan before the first sin before the foundations of the world was to rescue us by dying for us. Oh, Father, help us to be struck by this. Steal our breath away when we consider the depths to which you went to show us the heights of your love. Let us rejoice in this Advent season at your first coming. Look forward to your second coming. Let us together join in the angels' song and sing unto you glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.